Our scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of John chapter 9 that you'll be able to see on the screen in front of you. If you like to read it in the Bibles that are provided, it's on page 1664 in this Bible. Hear now the word of the Lord. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him. Wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means scent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, How can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, He is a prophet. They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son? They asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. A second time, they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, 
I have told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what, are we blind too? Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. This is the word of the Lord. All right, good morning, everybody. Uh, it's good to see you. Uh, I'm Logan. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, and we are continuing our series in the Gospel of John that we've been in for several months now. Uh, the question I want to ask you at the outset here is how do you make sense of the world that you live in? What is the story that you believe? What is the truth about life? And how do you come to know that truth? That is the question that is at the center of our text this morning. Now on the surface, this is a story about another one of Jesus's miraculous signs. It's the story about this moment when Jesus heals a man who was born blind. But behind all of this is a question. It is a question about the meaning of Jesus's power. It's a question about how do we make sense of who Jesus is and what he has done. It's about moving from a place of spiritual blindness to a place of spiritual sight. It's also a story that shows us that when Jesus opens our eyes, this world finally starts to make sense. When Jesus opens our eyes, we finally can understand what this world is all about. And so as we study this passage this morning, there are a few things I want us to see. First, I want us to see that spiritual blindness is ultimately a posture of faith. I don't know if this thing works. I'm, I'm trying. Okay, there we go. I only have like seven slides, so maybe just we can, they basically all say these things. <laughs> so, uh, but spiritual blindness is a posture of faith. And secondly, uh, the next thing I want us to see after that is, are some of the things that keep us from seeing Jesus. And finally, I, wanna, I want us to see what happens when Jesus 
opens our eyes. So let's talk about spiritual blindness as a posture of faith. Uh, this story is a pretty amazing story. It is a moment when Jesus, he, he gives sight, he restores sight to a man who has been blind from birth. And you gather as you read this story that it is unheard of. A miracle like this has, has never been done before in all of human history. This was not commonplace. In fact, it was something that was impossible. It's a major event. No one has ever seen this done, and, and they know this man. You also find that out. This is a guy who everyone recognizes. He has been a beggar in the temple, in the synagogue, day after day. And so when they see him healed, they, they recognize him. And they're shocked. And they ask him what exactly it is that happened. And he tells them in verse 11, he says, The man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. And he told me to go to Siloam and wash. And so I went and washed. And then I could see. And immediately the question on everybody's mind is, what does this mean? What are we supposed to make of this kind of power? What are we supposed to, to make of this guy? What is this Jesus person? What's he all about? Now in the middle of the passage, uh, there's that famous verse where he says, whether he is a sinner I, I don't know, but one thing I know, I was blind, and now I see. And if you've been around the church a while, maybe you've heard that verse lifted up as an example of maybe how we're supposed to do evangelism. Have you heard that before where they say, you know, you, what you really need to do is just tell people, go out in the world and tell people what Jesus has done for you. Let them know about your experience. Say, I used to be this way, and then I met Jesus, and, and now this is what my life is like. That's the proof that people need. They need to hear about your experience, what Jesus has done for you. And, and that's fine. I actually, th I hope you do do that. I hope you do go out into the world and tell people what Jesus has done for you. But that isn't what this guy is doing in the passage at all. Actually, he is saying, this isn't just about my individual experience. This is about the facts. He is pointing to the evidence he is pointing to something obvious and something observable, and he's saying, whatever decision you're going to make about Jesus today, you need to take into account that I used to be blind, and I'm not anymore. How do you explain that? You have to look at the facts. I want to start there because I think that probably we, we may have some skeptics here in the room today, or, or we'll have some that listen to this later online or, or Millions of YouTube subscribers, maybe, will <laughs> come across this sermon someday. And, and I think that there are a lot of people who think the, the Christian faith goes against facts. The Christian faith, that, that even the word faith means something like believing apart from reason. Faith is about sentimentality, maybe. It's about superstition, but it doesn't have anything to do with facts. The common notion today really is that the, the truly factual way of viewing the world is an atheistic view, a secular view, one that is logical and reasonable. And that if you are logical and reasonable, then ultimately you're going to come to the conclusion that there is no God. Maybe you've heard a story like that before, the story of someone who grows up in the church and then moves off and goes to college and and then as they start to study and learn they they begin to strip away 
all of the foolish superstitions that they learned as they were, they were growing up until they finally came to this logical, rational, factual conclusion that God can't exist. But I want to tell you this morning, if you don't know it already, that that position is just as much a position of faith as anything else. Whether you believe that life was created by God, or whether you believe that somehow, at some point in time, matter just created itself, those are both faith positions, right? There is no scientific experiment that you could possibly conduct that would prove either of those worldviews. It's a matter of faith. So then the question for all of us should be not, should we have faith, but what kind of faith best explains the world we live in? What kind of faith makes sense of this world we see? Which one best lines up with the observable facts of our life and our existence? Like these people who were in the synagogue that day, that they were talking to this blind man who could suddenly see. Their, their task and our task is to conclude from the evidence what best explains the things that we observe every day. Now in this sermon, I can't really dive deep into all the different proofs and reasons for a Christian faith, but I, can, I just want to give you one quick example here. So if you are a modern, secular person, that worldview, you believe at the basis of everything is evolution. Not, and not just evolution that one life form evolved from another life form. There are even a lot of Christians who would subscribe to that view of evolution. But a purely secular view of the world teaches that everything about us, all human emotions, every instinct and every desire that we have, is ultimately the result of natural selection. In other words, we feel the way we feel today because at some point, our ancestors developed those feelings and it helped them to survive, and so they were passed down to us. And if that is how the world works, that means ultimately there really is no transcendent right or wrong. There is no real good or bad. There, that's all just... A biological illusion, really. There is no truth with a capital T. There is only programming in our DNA that makes us feel a certain way. And so that means all your feelings about justice, all your hatred of the evils in the world, of murder and abuse or, or whatever, when you say those things are wrong, it's, it's because you have been biologically programmed through natural selection to feel that way. And not just the bad things, but the good things, too, like love. Love. That view of the world would tell you that, that love is not really significant. It's just chemicals in your brain that help you procreate. How does that really sit with you? How do you feel about that? Sure, I think we can all get into that logic. I think we can understand the logic behind it, but is it the best explanation? Is that the best explanation for the deep feelings that you have about your spouse or about your kids or even about your favorite pet? 
Does that explain the deep anger that you feel when you hear of a child who's being abused or a woman who's being trafficked? Are those things really wrong? Do they demand judgment? Do they demand justice? Or are they simply a preference we as a species have adapted? You know, the Christian view of the world says that we have a sense of right and wrong, not because there was a random series of unguided mutations in, in the hominids millions of years ago, but we feel this way because we have a personal creator who has made us in his image, and he's written his law on our hearts. It says that at the center of this universe, there is a, not an empty void, but a loving God who has made us like him. And so we have a desire to love and to be loved. We have a desire to, to see justice done. We have a desire for righteousness in this world. Now, I've already said both positions, both worldviews, they require faith. But which one best accounts for the facts? Which one best connects to your daily experience of the world? Which one explains the evidence that you see? That's the first point here. Even spiritual blindness, what the Bible would call spiritual blindness, even that is a position of faith. And another thing we gather from this passage is that there are certain things that will keep us from seeing God. There are certain obstacles that make it harder for us to see, to have spiritual sight. Uh, one of the things that's really interesting about this passage, I hadn't noticed it, honestly, until I, I studied it, even though I'd heard this story who knows how many times. No one in the story actually saw Jesus perform this miracle. Have you ever realized that? Remember, when Jesus healed the guy, he sent him away. He said, go off and wash in, the, the, in Siloam, and, and then you'll be healed. And so he does it, but, but then he leaves. And so the man doesn't see him. In this really long chapter, after verse 8, Jesus is gone until verse 35. And so most of the chapter is people trying to put together the facts, trying to draw a conclusion based off the evidence that they have. And, and if you look in the, the story, in this investigation portion, there are really two groups of people. Uh, that I think we still see today. The first group is the biased observer. Everybody say biased. Just making sure you're still awake. <laughs> the biased observer. That's the Pharisees in this passage. Okay? Now these Pharisees, we know, they already have an agenda before they start interacting with the guy. They hate Jesus. We know that because, well, the last verse of the last chapter. Remember how it ended? They picked up rocks to stone him, and he went away. They already know what they think about Jesus. They are trying to discredit him and to deny him. And you see it in the passage. In verse 16, before they even really give the man a hearing, they say, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. I think a lot of people today approach the claims of Jesus in a similar way to the way these Pharisees did. They have already decided before they even start to think about it. They've already come up with a conclusion. And so they don't really consider 
the options in front of them. Now, the Pharisees, we read, they did that because of him violating the Sabbath. They had taken this law from the Ten Commandments that said, you need to honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And they had gone and added very specific rules to that. They had added details so they knew exactly when you were keeping the Sabbath. And the scholars say the one they had particularly were were dealing with here is there was a law that you can't knead dough on the Sabbath. And so they think that when Jesus put spit in the mud, (laughs) they looked at that and said, oh, he's, he's breaking the Sabbath. That's one of the rules. You can't do that. Whatever the exact reason was, they immediately decide that Jesus is a sinner. And I think there are people today that come in with the same types of bias, but maybe for different reasons. What are some of those reasons? I think today a lot of people dismiss Jesus because, well, because they've seen Christians. (laughs) They're biased against Jesus because they have seen Christians who are judgmental, Christians who are unkind, Christians who are unloving, and they think, well, this Well, that's what Christ is probably all about. Christians are religious, self-righteous people who want to force their rules on everyone else. There's a book that came out a few years ago called Unchristian, and it's a book with a lot of statistics and data about the current generation and how they view the church. And it says that the number one perspective of people outside of the church is that Christians are overly political and extremely judgmental and extreme. So, it's funny when you think about it. It's kind of ironic that what has most people rejecting Jesus today has less to do with Jesus, less to do with his own teachings, and and really it has to do with the second coming of the Pharisees. This group of people that that the world believes are, are just like the Pharisees of long ago. And I want to say, if that's you this morning, if you're in that camp, if that's your view of Christians in the church, first I want to, I just want to apologize. Because I know that there's a reason you feel that way. We have done some pretty crummy things. But I want to tell you that if that's your, your bias heading into this, hearing this, please just pay attention. Try to see Jesus here because I... Uh, these, these guys, these Pharisees, held so tightly to their preconceived objections that they missed their Savior standing right in front of them. And I don't want the same thing to happen to you. So first we have this bias group. The second group we see is what I want to call the, uh, the cost counters. Everybody say cost counters. So cost counters, what do I mean? Well, those are, are the people who recognize... The power of Jesus, they hear the promise of Jesus, but they think the cost of belief is too much. They counted the cost and it's too high. And the people like that in this story are the blind man's parents. So as Melissa read for us, first they interrogate the blind man, and when they don't get enough info out of him, it says they go and they interrogate the parents. Now, uh, try to imagine their perspective for a minute. Put yourself in their shoes. It must have been an extremely difficult thing to have a child who was blind from birth in the ancient world. I mean, this 
this was a time when there was no Braille. There were no seeing eye dogs, right? That meant that this would be a daily struggle for them. Their child would have no opportunity for education and really no opportunity for any kind of employment. And so as he grows up and, and becomes a little older, in order to provide, he has to go and beg every day. Imagine knowing that your son is going and begging for a living. I'm sure there was a lot of shame in that. I'm sure there was a lot of sadness in that every day. And then imagine, one day, he shows up at your door, and he can see. It's a miracle. His sight is back. His eyes are newly formed. He is able to see. He has been freed from this horrible sentence, this life of oppression and, and suffering that he was going to have to deal with forever. Now, he is, he is 100% healthy. How joyful would that be? But then you hear what happened, that he was healed by this rabbi called Jesus. And Jesus is already notorious in the synagogue. We read here in verse 22 that, that in fact, the, the leaders have already said, if anyone acknowledges Jesus, if they follow him, if they call him Messiah, then they will immediately be cast out of the synagogue. And so that means... You'll lose your whole community if you acknowledge him. Not just your community, but you'll lose your place in society. The synagogue was tied with, with voting. It was tied, intermixed with, with civic life. You would become an outcast in the world. And so, when the Pharisees come and they ask them what happened, well, they basically plead the fifth. That's, that's what they do. They say, well, we can see that this is our son, but... Whoever opened his eyes, we don't know. Go, go ask him. He's old enough. Talk to him. What happened there? Well, they counted the cost. And they decided it was too great. And I know a lot of people feel that same way about the Christian faith today. When we, we think about faith, we count the cost and we feel like it's too great. And there's, there's some truth to that. It, it is costly to follow Jesus. There is a tremendous cost to following Jesus, no doubt about it. Following Jesus requires nothing short of a complete reorienting of your entire life. When Jesus calls people to follow him in Matthew, do you remember what he said? Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, he says, whoever wants to be my disciples must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. So he says, first you deny yourself, and then you take up your cross. And the cross, that is an instrument of death. You know, in today's language, you'd say, take up your electric chair or your lethal injection kit and follow me. A lot of times today, we'll see these preachers on TV, and what's their message? What are they preaching? They're saying, well, follow Jesus, and you'll live your best life right now. You'll get rich. You'll get happy. What God wants to do, he wants to bless, 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 bless you. And you see their houses, and they live in mansions, and they have these fabulous cars, and they say, follow Jesus, and you can have these things too. But look at Jesus. That's not what Jesus says. 
That's not, that's not how Jesus lived. If you really follow Jesus, you'll follow in his footsteps. Living a life of integrity may cost you a promotion. Living a life where you refuse to go along with the status quo, where you refuse to go along with the crowd, that may leave you on the outside looking in. Living a life serving other people instead of yourselves, that may end up with a life of modest means and anonymity instead of wealth and fame. Living a life of obedience to the law of God, there will be times when that that challenges you to give up things that are at the very core of your identity. At times, it'll feel like dying. But here's the rest of that verse. Verse 25 in Matthew, he says, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? In other words, he's saying that the cost is great, but the reward is greater. Knowing God, living in his presence forever, being truly satisfied in a loving relationship with him for all of eternity, there is no cost too great if that's the reward on the other side. But see, these parents, they counted the cost and they turned away. They chose their community. But in the process, they also missed their Savior. What about you? Is there a cost that you think is too great? There are a lot of things in this life that keep us from seeing. But the last thing we see in this passage is what happens when Jesus finally opens our eyes. Okay, so let's get to it. Let's look at this man who was healed. Even if you're not a Christian, you got to admit that this guy is someone to be admired. He is, he's a young guy, but man, he is so confident, isn't he? He just has this swagger about him that, that even he's got a kind of a sense of humor as he's getting interrogated by these people, right? You can't help but kind of root for him as the story goes on. Here you have these powerful people who are, are asking these really hard questions, not just to him, but to his, his parents. It says they're mocking him. It says they're insulting him. In verse 34, it says, You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. In other words, they punished him with the very thing his parents feared the most. They want him to reject Jesus. And he refuses. It seems like there is nothing that can shake this guy. And why? Why is that? Well, because his eyes have been opened. Now, up to this point in the sermon, I've talked a lot about faith, about considering the cost, about considering the logic of it all. I've talked about what might motivate a person to decide to follow Jesus. But there's something I don't want us to miss here. 
something that isn't unique to this man's story, but something we need to, to notice. Jesus came to him, not the other way around. You see that? In verse 1, we find out that Jesus saw the man. This guy was blind. He had no idea Jesus was even there, but Jesus saw him and he went to him. And then it happens again. At the end of the passage, in verse 35, Jesus goes back to him to finish the process he began. When Jesus found out this guy was thrown out of the temple, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And the blind man said, Who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. And Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. The man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. So first, Jesus opens this man's eyes physically, and then he goes back and opens his eyes spiritually. And so what I've said up to this point is true. There, there is a logical, reasonable side to our faith. We need to weigh the facts. We need to consider the evidence. We need to, to figure out what makes uh, the world make the most sense. But the heart of our faith is not just a set of facts. At the heart of our faith is not just a, a bunch of theology or rational arguments. At the heart of our faith is a living God. A Savior. A Savior who is in the business of opening the eyes of blind men and women. Here in this room, how many of us today can share a testimony just like this man's? I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. How many of you can look back on a day when Jesus saw you and came to you? If that's your story, say amen. See, the good news of the gospel is that we have a God who does not rely on us to figure it all out. Who does not send us this list of commands and demands and say, keep these things and hopefully you'll be worthy enough someday. But we have a God who comes after his people. A God who finds us. A God who, in the person of Jesus, stepped out of eternity and into our world. While we were still sinners. While we were still blind to our sins. He died for us. He died for you. He died to redeem you. And to redeem this whole broken world. And to bring us back into that eternal, loving relationship with God that exists at the center of this world. That relationship that our hearts, we know deep down that is what we are looking for. That is what we are made for. One of the commentators, one of the scholars I read this week said that, that this man stands out in Scripture because he has what seems like today is one of the rarest gifts of all. Common sense. He has common sense. Despite all the pressures that are on him, despite all the threats that are going against him, there is nothing that could make him deny this very simple and obvious fact, I used to be blind and I'm not anymore. Folks, that's the kind of assurance that comes to you 
when Jesus opens your eyes. I want to spell this out as, as clearly as I can here at the end. Here is what spiritual sight means. Here is what happens when Jesus opens your eyes. The first thing he does when he opens your eyes is he lets you see just how big of a sinner you are. He lets you see that you have been eternally separated from him. Not by accident, but by your active choice to live a life apart from him. Not just by the bad things that you do. But as you see what a, a holy God is really like, as you see what perfection really means, you realize that you are just way worse than you ever could have possibly imagined. Right? He saved a wretch like me. You realize that you are a wretch in the truest sense of the word. But then the other thing that happens as he opens our eyes is that he shows you you have a Savior who loves you more than you could have ever imagined. You have a God who looks down on you right in this moment and he smiles. Not based on your performance. Not based on the expectations he has of something you're going to do for him someday. But he loves you because he loves you. Because he came for you. And one day, he's going to see you face to face. And until that day, he will pursue you each and every day. That means when our eyes are open, that means when we have spiritual sight, it doesn't make Pharisees. It doesn't make religious people who force the world to live up to their standards and pass all their tests. But it makes what? It makes, it makes missionaries. It makes a people who are filled with humility who are filled with love for the world. It makes passionate and comparing, com compassionate and caring people who go outside of these doors into their community and they are looking for those spiritually blind people so they can offer the same gift that they've received. Is that who you are? Are your eyes open? Is that who you want to be? Let's go to the Lord and let's ask him to pray. Father, we are grateful for this word. And this, this famous passage, this beautiful story, a story of a man that we've never met before, but a story that is, is really all of our story about the amazing grace. We once were lost, but now we're found. We once were blind, but now we see. Lord, would you open our eyes again? Would you give us your eyes to see the spiritual reality of this world? Would you give us your eyes to see the needs of our neighbors and those we love? And God, would you give us your power that we might go out and we might share this good news with the rest of the world? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.